it was a very big finding for me that I was an artist. It was a huge thing to feel seen. And you, you don't make movies for nothing, you know, or mm -hmm. you don't make art for nothing. I suddenly you have to shout it out and to 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 spread it so strongly because you haven't felt your I haven't felt heard or seen in my family. So that's why I needed to do a movie to spread it out there because I yeah. needed to be like Can you see me? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Can you see my anger? Can you see all that? Yeah. Because it wasn't possible in the intimacy of my family. Welcome to Première Personne, a podcast about vulnerable storytelling where we unpack the transformative power of first-person narratives. I am your host, Brune Smith. This episode is sponsored by my writing coaching services. I believe in the healing power of tough stories and the world needs to hear yours. You have a book in you. Whether you're intimidated by the act of writing and have no idea where to start, or you've been writing for years, you need a supportive sounding board. Someone who will provide structure, accountability, and generous feedback so you can tell your story in a way only you can do, in spite of your inner critic. As everyday life informs our writing and vice versa, my conversations with the writers I help month after month often go beyond just the writing. This is deep one-on-one -on -one work, which also means spots are limited. So if you want to get writing, keep writing, and get to that finish line in a way that feels like you, book your free consult with me today at tinyurl.com brunesmith. The link is in the show notes. It's a link to my calendar where you can directly schedule our video call. I'll help you unleash your writing power and we'll figure out your next steps. The world needs your words. Let's make your book a reality. Now, back to the episode. Once in a while, you come across somebody's body of work, of art, of political acts of reinvention, or all of the above, and you can just tell. There's no limit to the guidance and contribution they're going to keep bringing to this world. Today on the podcast, I'm honored to get to amplify the voice of one of the people who I've looked up to the most over the last 10 years. With the level of art and conversations that she's been bringing to the table, for me, she's right up there with Roxane Gay, Ocean Vuong, Jamila Jamil, Liz Gilbert, or Glennon Doyle. She's been on dozens of French podcasts, and I thought it was high time she was interviewed in English so that the rest of the world can get to know her especially since her paradigm-shifting movies are available online in English and other languages. I'm talking about the incredible French-Vietnamese documentary filmmaker and all-around creative being, Mai Yua. So far, Mai has directed a documentary about her lineage of women called The Rivers, a second documentary about masculine vulnerability called Make Me a Man, and she just co-released a three-part documentary series called After Anger that takes us inside a group therapy retreat. In this first part of our two-part conversation, Maya and I talk about how what she thought she was documenting about her family became something completely different that totally changed her life, the people around her, and the broader cultural conversation around intergenerational trauma. 
We also talk about the creative process, her surprising relationship to her own imagination, and poetry. Here's the delightful Mai Yua. Hello, Mai. Hello, Brune. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this interview in English with me. My pleasure. Thank you. I am so glad to be talking to you today because when I was in Canada for the last few years, I would sometimes have conversations with my friends about transgenerational trauma or masculinity and vulnerability. And so I would tell them, you know my Ua, right? And you know, you've seen her movies, right? And they would tell me no. And so I would tell them about you, but I think it's best if you tell them about you. So <laughs> um, I would love to start with your first movie, Les Rivières. Could you tell our listeners what it is? <laughs> so Les Rivières is a kind of, uh, it was called An Intimate Archaeology about my family. So it's a documentary. It's both a documentary and a tale about my female lineage. It's an exploration about what we pass on to each other, generation to generation, without even knowing it. And it starts with a conversation I have with one of my uncle, who kind of reveals me that I belong to a cursed line of women, that I'm cursed, which of course was a bit traumatic. <laughs> But at the same time, he gave me the courage to move on because I have a daughter and I didn't want to pass it on to her. And at that time, I didn't love myself enough to do it for myself, but I, I loved her enough to do it for her. And so... I do a lot of things, so meditation and therapy and yoga and plenty of things. And four years after this revelation, my uncle dies. And my grandmother, who is living with him, who is already suffering from Alzheimer, decompensate. And we decide to go to Vietnam to bring her back to France. And so all these events, so me thinking that I'm cursed and trying to find out why, what, when, etc. My grandmother being back amongst us in the family makes this movie possible because at that time I have a blog and the blog is about intimacy, it's about transmission, it's about beauty and I tend to film all the time. So my mom is like, okay, you film all your life, so... You have to document this. And what she didn't know and what I didn't know then is that this dying very old lady who can't walk anymore, who can't speak anymore, who can't eat anymore, will come back in, in France amongst her beloved ones and suddenly life, life comes back in a very miraculous way. And so what I'm filming is not someone dying but someone saying yes to life, you know. Um, and and in, two, in two months, she, I find her dancing until 2 a.m. in the morning <laughs> in French-Vietnamese nightclubs <laughs> and very crazy 
crazy situation. And it just happened that I filmed this all. And so it, it became Les Rivières. Mm. So you mentioned that your grandmother came back to France. So can you yeah. take us back to when she had been in France before and then your whole family, where did mm. you grow up and so on? Mm. On my mother's side, my family arrived in the early 70s in Paris. Uh, so my mom was just about to begin her studies and she studied uh, medicine in, in Paris. My grandfather was a diplomat, so they had a kind of rich life, you know, uh, with a big house and, and people to help for the housekeeping and the food and driving and all that kind of lifestyle. And suddenly they arrive in, in Paris in a, a tiny apartment with almost six brothers and sisters plus the different wives and husbands and my grandparents and and my grandmother begin to be um, a waitress and then uh, look after children in kindergarten. And I realized very lately that it was a, a what we call in French a, a social déclassement. So she changed class from this very bourgeois life to being a waitress. Mm. But in me growing up, And the tales about it wasn't that. It was suddenly she could earn her own money and she could access freedom and a kind of emancipation. And so I think that's when the story of women in my family began to change, where suddenly uh, new horizons were provided for this uh, Vietnamese family And my mom could access studies in medicine, and she became a doctor. Mm. My grandmother lived, and my grandfather, <coughs> after, they lived for 40 years in France. And so when my grandfather, at the end of his life, fell sick, he had a cancer, there had been a whole fantasy, a family fantasy, about going back to your homeland, which is Vietnam. And we would have tons of stories about people, you know, feeling so welcoming back, people who had uh, difficulties walking in the streets of Paris and suddenly they come back to their hometown and they, they can walk again and they don't have any breath problem or any skin problems or all these things. You know, they have sweet dreams. And, you know, there, there is a this whole family fantasy building up and we decide together to bring them back to Vietnam. And that happens, I think, in 2009. So after 40 years with my mom, we, we take the plane with them. My uncles are waiting for them in this beautiful house in mm. the suburb of Ho Chi Minh City with, uh, you know, papaya trees and avocado trees and, and people holding the house again and preparing food again. And... Actually, it's a disaster. I mean, my, my grandfather, who was really weak already, he couldn't walk anymore. He falls literally in a kind of in-between state between life and death. And my grandmother, who was already not very keen on going back to Vietnam, realized that she doesn't know this country anymore. 
She doesn't know anyone anymore. She doesn't have people there. She has her two sons, but not all the daughters and the grandchildren and the life around and people dancing and people from the canteen every week. Oh no, not every week, every, every noon. And so she loses all her social network and all her home, actually, because mm. home is where the people you love are. And you know that, isn't it? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and so she wants to come back home, but her husband is dying. And so there is this thing about let's wait Mm. And the thing, the horrible thing is that my grandmother, my grandfather is dying, but he doesn't die. Mm. And so she waits. And for four years, the situation won't evolve for him. So he will stay in this in-between state, not dying, not recovering. And she will be declining progressively Mm. until she really loses everything of her her teeth and her mental health and her health and up to a point where my mother is like why why are we doing that why are we imposing to this woman that she waits for her husband to die in a country that is not her country anymore so it's a horrible tragic situation but it's the situation where we're like actually what we're doing right now by not taking decision is sacrificing the life of this woman for the sake of a woman should be next to her dying husband but actually we are going to lose both of them right and so we have this moment where we are like okay we need to bring her back to france my mom is a doctor she will look after her I really believe we're just going to bring her back to be around her when she's she will be dying. And, and so we separate them, which is horrible, you know, yeah. all this <laughs> totally yeah. horrible situation where, you know, life brings you to such amount of pain, but where there is a resolution. And so we separate them. So he stays on his own with my uncles in Vietnam with my mother we come back with my grandmother and my grandmother lives with my mother and super quickly like two months after she's dancing (laughs) until 2 a.m and so on (laughs) so um, you know I'm like uh, you know if it was in a fiction I would say "Mm, this is a bit too much (laughs) (laughs) right the script is a bit too much but it's real life you know it's Mm. and mm. I think that that's what so beautiful about telling human stories uh documenting them it's when you you're you're going to the threshold of your imagination where imagination can't go Mm -hmm. and life proposes you something I think that for me, growing as a as a Vietnamese immigrated woman living in a quite a violent family, there was something about my imagination that was totally blocked and still is actually, where I can't imagine things, I can't imagine situation, or which sounds very counterintuitive because I'm a filmmaker, I'm an artist, but I'm not driven by my imagination. 
I'm not driven at all by that because I don't have anything around that topic. What really moves me and makes me create is life itself. Mm. It's and and it's okay, you know. I, I think I think it maybe someday I will recover that capacity to imagine things, you know, a capacity to dream. Mm. You know, you hear all the time, you know, you should dream and follow your dreams and make it possible and all that. And like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, because you have a different relationship to your dreams because you do have a relationship with them. Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. My dreams are quite tragic. <laughs> <laughs> and I follow them in, in the way that I'm like, uh, okay, my dreams are a kind of reality. It happens to me when I have a dream, and I talk about it in La Riviere. There are three dreams that I really listen to that are very tragic or melancholic, or but they guide me in, okay, my anxiety is here or my fears are here. Um, my dreams are revealing a lot of my fears, and this is guiding me, not that my life is fear-driven it's not about that it's about okay there are fears here let's explore that mm -hmm. let's call someone who can give me some answers about that let's call my mom let's okay so yeah. this is this is what it is about so this grandmother coming back to our life is actually my line of women suddenly being reconstructed and then something is moving through that and energies are flowing again everything mm -hmm. that was kind of frozen like the canadian rivers you know they're frozen and then one day in spring all the ice is breaking and right. and the rivers are flowing again and i think this was exactly in french we call it uh, la débâcle mm, yeah i don't know the the english word but there is a specific word about that and it was exactly that my grandmother came back And suddenly all the neurosis, all the relationship that were frozen by her leaving us, right. by the silence between us, the non-communication about our anxieties, our pain, our fears, it's suddenly possible because she's back and not dying. Mm. And that when someone is about to die and not die, don't die, there is a, a morning of the dying process, right. you know, which is super weird, actually. Mm -hmm. And after the person is recontacting all her ghost, all her life, everything at the same time, you know, it's not just, oh, like, like in movies, like, uh, and then, you know, she recovered and was healthy and life was beautiful. Right. No, actually, life is not beautiful. <laughs> after she recovers, she recovers with all her anxiety and her bad character and her <laughs> neurosis <laughs> yeah and that's in the movie and yeah yeah and mm -hmm. so the movie is about that also mm -hmm. how you integrate life but as a whole not just as the nice story about right. this old woman who, who recovers and survives Yes, and so you talked about documenting. Your mother suggested that you documented this thing, but it's one thing to document it, and it's another one to put it out there and, and choose <laughs> to share it with the world. And, and it's such a big thing, especially because you're showing not just yourself, but also members of your family. So how did that happen, and where was that hinge between the personal and then the public? 
So that was that was a difficult one. The first step was to was to understand that the process of the filmmaking was actually the making of us. That was a big thing for us to understand that these images that were filmed during three years was actually revealing part of ourselves that were invisible to us mm. because of plenty of things, because of what we were saying about our anxiety, our fears, our impossibility to communicate with each other, the silence that is the norm in my family, but I found out after the norm of any family, yeah. <laughs> uh, you don't talk, uh, right. mostly about pain. You don't talk about pain. Mm. Um, and so suddenly it was revealed through the images. And so we were transgressing the law of the family by making this movie. And that was huge. Uh, so I had a lot of resistance from my family, from my mom, who was so happy and eager to be filmed and suddenly watching, you know, progressively the different edits. Each edit was revealing something new about us, mm. about our dysfunctional system, about everything, about our truth, actually, about the invisible truth and the curse of this silence between us. Mm. So there was this first step. And I think that my mom was really caught between her loyalty towards her, her daughter, me, who she really wanted she really wanted me to blossom with this process. But at the same time, she was very fearful about her family and what her parents would think about it, mostly her dad. And because my grandmother was very happy about the movie. <laughs> so she was caught into between these two system of loyalties, mm. which is very representative of any parent, actually. Where is your biggest loyalty towards the new generation or towards the eldest? And in a lot of Asian cultures, the cult of the ancestors and the respect you owe to your eldest is really the cement of all the culture. So it's a very big thing mm. to understand where is your blind loyalty, your true loyalty, just the respect. You know, it's, it's so many layers to that. Where is actually the fear of disobeying? And then where is your submission? So you have all that to work on and mm. you realize that the key of this rhythm of processing is not yours because it was me who was having, who was knowing when to stop, when to go on, when I would launch the movie, etc. So my mom was really tr triggered. Mm. Uh, it was a very hard process for her. And then from the very start, it was a project that was meant to be published. Okay, yeah. You know, it was born in the blog uh, that I was sharing with my community at that time. Mm. After I didn't have any support from cultural institutions in France. So it was crowdfunded by my community. So there was a lot of support and love and kind of healthy expectations from my community. Mm. And so it was meant to be published anyway. Mm. And so after when I finished the movie, I shared it. So I didn't have any institution again or TV or no one supporting this project because at that time it, it was pre-Black Lives Matter and all the discussion we we're having about 
people of color, mostly in France. I mean, it's France is really it's not Canada. I tell you, it's really not Canada. And the resistance around this subject is so big in France. Mm. And at that time, it was not even possible to mention this. And so it was really seen as, okay, so it's about four French Vietnamese people. Right. So it will just have interest of the Vietnamese community. It's not very universal. So it was seen as being very little and all that. Mm. And, um, and so I was like, okay, so no one wants this movie on a cultural institutional French level. Right. But anyway, I need to share it with my community because they're the one who have founded it and uh, it was supposed to be public right from the start. Right. And so I really literally, you know, put a, a trailer together, put a website together, put it on Vimeo, was searching for the view, the modalities and so on. And, and I press enter. <laughs> Like that, <laughs> and and actually, there was suddenly an amount of emotions and sharings and what you're saying. You know, people who are like, "Do you know this movie? You have to watch this movie." And it was really uh, from word to mouth. I, I can't yeah, remember. Like the, yeah, like organic. Uh, it yeah. was very, very organic. Mm. And then three three years later, people still share it. People still talk about it, and. And I received, you know, it was very moving because now I think it's been seen in 82 different countries. Oh, my goodness. It's amazing. And, and I received messages from Japan, from the center of France, you know, right. uh, from rural places, from Algeria, from Haiti. And I received messages from women saying, you know what? I was told I was cursed to. Mm. And I think that without knowing it because I was so much into my intimate issues, you know, about my family, about resolving something about that, yeah. that I didn't know that I would be carrying topics that are so universal about women and about women feeling cursed, about women feeling belittled, about women who have this kind of education. Because, of course, if you want to... If you want a woman to stay little and really be cut from her power, you just tell her she's cursed. You know, mm. it's, it's as easy as that. When you're immigrant, your family is everything. You don't have anything else than your family. And the Vietnamese culture is very linked to family too. And so from that perspective, from that experience, you have something to say about family that is broader than just your community or just you being an immigrant. But as such, you have something universal to say about families. So. Mm -hmm. And so universal, in fact, that many members of your community offered to translate the subtitles. Yeah, 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 yeah. So one day I received, uh, I received a mail from Tokyo uh, from a woman I didn't know at all, you know, who just, you know, she had a, how do you say that, a file attached. And I opened the file and there are 50 pages of Japanese 
you know, I didn't understand anything about it. But yeah. it was just the translation of everything. And I was like... The subtitles. What? Exactly. It wasn't subtitles at that time. Ah, she yeah. transformed it into subtitles after, which is also a, a very big amount of work. Mm-hmm. But she was like, I needed to have this experience to really translate this into my own language. And after I really wanted any Japanese woman to access this movie, because I think that in Japan, that was her thinking, but she said, I think in Japan, women are, they don't even have words to explain their experience anymore. It's so mm. violent. And it's, and so I want, I want Japanese women to have access to that. And after I had three people proposing at the same time to translate it into Spanish, uh-huh. and so it was the same, and and lately in Italian also. But I, I also have it translated into Vietnamese, into German, into English. So mm. my my next goal is Arabic. I would yeah. I would love to have Arabic mm. uh, translations for the movie. But yeah, it's very beautiful. It is. And how has it changed your life, that movie? Oh, everything. Everything yeah. is transformed because mm. I think, um, you know, it transformed my whole relationship to my mother. Mm. And I think, I mean, for me, my relationship to my mother was the matrix to all relationships. And so from then on, all my relationship with anyone, including myself, has been totally transformed. How can I say that? It, it was just that uh, Les Rivières made it compulsory for me to acknowledge that I was limited in the way I was envisioning this relationship and my anger around it and and the pain around it. Mm. And that it was required not only for the movie, but for myself and for my children, once again, to heal that mm. or at least try to <laughs> right. it's never over but um but that changed and after i think that i it, it's a bit moving to say that because you know you have a way to relate to yourself that is totally different from the way people relate to yourself and it was a very big finding for me that i was an artist it was a huge thing to feel seen and you, you don't make movies for nothing, you know, or mm-hmm. you don't make art for nothing. I suddenly, you have to shout it out and to spread it so strongly because you haven't felt, you, I haven't felt heard or seen in my family. So that's why I needed to do a movie to spread it out there because I yeah. needed to be like, can you see me? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> can you see my anger? Can you see all that? Yeah, because it wasn't possible in the intimacy of my family. <laughs> yeah, and so and so it was very moving for me to be and and people are like, my, of course you're an artist. When are you going to understand that? I mean, mm. it's a it's it's so basic for us. It's just the bottom line of who you are, what you do, and who you are is the same thing. So. Mm. I, don't make it bigger than what it is it's just the truth and and for me it was a big thing to take that territory yes within myself yes it, it to be seen mm-hmm. as such yeah mm-hmm. so that was very transformative yeah and 
I'm assuming this, like uh, taking this territory, allowed you then to take on more projects. Exactly. And so exactly. you are also in the process of writing a book. Yes. That's such a different medium. Can you tell us about your relationship to the process of writing? So what is the same is that I'm very slow. I'm so <laughs> slow. Like, you know, so I've been writing for three years. Mm -hmm. And I think that I, I, I kind of adopted the same way of doing my movies, of making my movie, which is I generate a lot of rush, a lot of material. And after I have a, a whole time where I need to edit and cut down and, and understand what all this material is saying as a living organism. So I really see it this way. So now I'm, I'm, and then when you understand why all this process is for, what is your internal quest, which is never visible at the beginning for me, I mean, um, then you rewrite everything according to the quest. So that's where I'm, I am now. So I'm supposed to deliver something to my publisher in, in April. <laughs> I'm laughing so much because I'm not ready at all, but it's very, mm -hmm. it's very, uh, yeah. And what is different from making a movie is that when you make a movie, so you, you have, I mean, I have my camera and I, ch and in the edit, in, in the, in the filming and in the editing, I constantly make the choice of what is within and what will be out. Right. Uh, but what, and so there is a subjective, constant, you know, decision-making process that is very subjective. But then, if I choose an image, all that is in the image, in this rectangle, is objective. Right. So the sounds, the way people are dressed, the way they behave, the way one is sat and the other is just next to him standing up. So the energies the dynamics, all that is objective. And so for, for Les Rivières, it was really disturbing that the stories I was making was absolutely not validated by the images I was having. And I remember my editor, he was like, I don't understand your thing about being cursed. I mean, the images I see mm. are beautiful with really funny ladies. Uh, you don't have any problem for money you eat well, you dance, and when you have a problem, you talk about it. Right. I mean, I, I don't see where's the curse, really. You're beautiful. And I was like, mm. oh? <laughs> <laughs> Are you? Do you mean that everything I believed in is yeah. wrong? Mm. And he was like, I don't know if it's wrong, but it's not true. Mm. And, and so uh, my images were enabling me to navigate my belief system uh, notably believing that I was cursed uh, and, and, and see the difference with what was reality. In writing, you're totally subjective. So you don't have this, you know, reality check. Yeah. But what you have is being totally subjective. And so going as far as you want in your, I don't know how to say that, in your fucked upness, in your um, funniness, in your, you know, things that can go a bit on the edge. Mm. 
Um, and that's really interesting also, I think. It's very, very, uh, it's another way to express yourself. Totally subjective. So it's literally a white page and, you know, black signs on it. And so I still don't have any imagination, but <laughs> I, I, can, I can navigate differently from a, a movie where you, movie you held by reality, a form of reality, let's say that. Yeah. Mm. Okay. I'll ask you one <laughs> last question. Yeah. <laughs> to take us in a in another realm, you say you don't have imagination, but you have a very poetic eye. What? Yeah. How do you relate you. to poetry? What what place does poetry hold in your life and your way of mm. doing things? Mm. Yeah, it's. Uh, thank you for saying that. I was reading Joy Arjo. Mm. And she said something like, at that moment, the spirit of poetry took over. I can't remember what was the event at that moment, but, you know, I really believe in spirits to some point. In a non, um, it's, it's not a religious point of view, it's just, I really feel that I sometimes see things that really moves me. I remember before doing this uh, beauty blog, I was working in cosmetics and I became, which is so funny to say, but that's, that's the truth. I became an expert in colors. <laughs> so yeah. I was a color designer. And I remember my first class in color, because even colors, you can teach them. Mm. At the end of the first day, I came out in the street looking for my metro station and I came out and there was no metro station anymore. You know, there was no walls, there was no street, no sky. You know, there was no conceptualized reality around me. It was only blues and grays and ochre yellow. And, and it was uh, even talking about it right now. And it happened 15 years ago. It's so moving that mm -hmm. suddenly I had access to a kind of mystical experience where there is no conceptualized truth. There is no thoughts. You know, you just have a direct experience of life itself just in another form that is not thought about. So there's no nose, there's no eye, you know, it's just shades. And I think that ever since, and before already, but since I, I, I could get access to this other reality that is maybe that is poetry that is suddenly you swing into another realm that is blowing you know in your cells or something and it you know it's you you just have your eyes like that and you're caught by that form of inspiration that can come from anywhere and the only thing you can do is to work your flexibility and your access to it mm. but you just once you've seen it you just know it exists you know it and maybe it's not what uh, spirits are like or you know but I know that this realm exists it's just for, up to me to access it and so I think that's where when I began to film after in the blog and after in my movies you know I'm so moved by just 
leaves and the wind passing by. And I just saw that these emotions were, to some extent, translated into my writing or my images. And that transcription was then carrying this emotion to people. And so I had this kind of medium by words or by colors or motion pictures to to transmit it to other people who yeah. don't always see the wind in the leaves. Mm-hmm. But to some extent, they are placed into a dark room onto a, a seat and suddenly there are these images that are so big and they receive them. And I, you know, I, I really think movies are rituals. I mean, I see them like that. I see them like, uh, it's not philosophical, it's not political, it's something else that is about suddenly you take an appointment with a poetic point of view and you receive it and these images are bigger than you. And sometimes you're with your mother next to you and with your friend next to you and you receive them at the same time. And I always feel so blessed when I... Uh, listen to the the crowds or the audience reacting at the same time, laughing at the same time, weeping at the same time, or holding their breath at the same time. And I find that um, that we don't have collective experience so mm. much now that enables people to feel the same thing or have their body, you know, moved by the same waves at the same time. And I feel wh- wh- when you do your your uh, storytelling and you have your microphone and you have your crowd, I think that's what we feel also. It's a ritual uh, where you have an appointment with poetry, with mm-hmm. the spirit of poetry, whatever right. the shape is. And right. I, I find it's very beautiful and we really need that. <laughs> it's I not, agree. you know, we, we had all this debate in France uh, during the coronavirus about essential what, what was it? Essential activities like food and yeah. against non-essential activities. And we would see all these bookshops, you know, being, you know, mm. banned with, you know, tapes around the corners in the shops where it would be split between essential and non-essential. I think, I think if poetry and art is living the human life, the human won't live anymore. I really believe that it's really essential. So, <laughs> yes. Ah. Oh. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mai. Thank you, Brune. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for the second part of our two part conversation where we'll dive into Mai's second movie that she made with her now husband, Jerry Hyde, about masculine vulnerability, that movie's called Make Me a Man, and we'll also talk about their latest three-part documentary series called After Anger. In the meantime, please go watch The Rivers. I'll put the link in the show notes. It truly is a special movie, and actually invite friends over or your mom or your family. It can be a transformative communal experience to watch it together. Um, Thank you so much for being here. Go follow my at my underscore ua on Instagram. That's at m-a-i underscore h-u-a 
on Instagram. The link is also in the show notes. If this podcast means something to you, it would mean so much to me if you'd be willing to take 30 seconds to do each or all of these three things. First, can you please follow or subscribe to Première Personne? Following the pod helps you because you'll never miss an episode and it helps me because you'll never miss an episode. To do this, just go to the Première Personne show page on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and then just hit the plus sign in the upper right-hand corner. This is the most important thing for the pod. While you're there, if you'd be willing to give me a five-star rating and review and share an episode you loved with a friend, I would be so grateful. I appreciate you very much. Première Personne is produced by me, Brune Smith, and you can email me through the contact form at experiencenarrative.com. That's experiencenarrative.com, and the link is always in the show notes. Thanks for being here. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day, and I'll talk to you soon.